Welcome to our podcast. We hope that this content is a blessing for your life. Enjoy the message. Those of you who are here in person, you just delight my heart. My heart feels very full when I see you each week, just because of your love for the Lord to be here. And also for those online, we're so grateful for you as well. Let's just bow our heads in a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you that your presence is here. Your life is here. Your spirit is here, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that you would honor your word in a very refreshing way this morning. That, God, we would hear what you want to speak, because you want to speak to each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to share from a book that's pretty obscure. This morning, I had shared a little bit with the women on the Zoom, uh, Synergist Women, in the end of October. But it's about the Song of Songs. And next to Revelation, the Song of Songs is probably the most misunderstood book of the entire Bible. The interpretations of the Song of Songs have been debated throughout history. But this book has been treasured by Christian leaders, both men, interestingly enough, and women. Madame Jean Guillon, she was a Christian mystic in the 1600s, she wrote a book, Song of Songs, and it was born out of her vibrant relationship with Jesus. She was a member of an aristocratic family living in Paris, France, during the very corrupt reign of Louis XIV. And as a young girl, she was educated in a Dominican convent. Miraculously, a Bible had been left in her room. So she had direct access to the Word of God and grew to love it with all of her heart. Later on in life, Madame Guillaume contracted smallpox. And she was imprisoned in the Bastille for teaching that salvation was a gift of God's grace. Jonathan Edwards, the famous American theologian of the Great Awakening and president of Princeton University, described the theme of the Song of Songs. And he said, Christ and his church rejoice in each other as those that are the objects of each other's most tender and ardent love. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, said, few portions of the word will help the devout student more than the pursuit of this all-important knowledge of God than the much-neglected Song of Solomon. And Charles Spurgeon, often referred to as the Prince of Preachers from London, England, said, the Song of Solomon is to the whole Bible what the Holy of Holies was to the temple. The canticles are the holy of holies, and he that has not learned to enter with the high priest into that which is within the veil will never be able to read Solomon's song. 
The Song of Songs develops two main characters. The first is King Solomon, the son of King David and Bathsheba, referred to throughout the Song of Songs as the Beloved. You remember as a young king, Solomon asked God for wisdom, but later in life he departed from the Lord and he finally summed up life in Ecclesiastes. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. The second main character is the Shulamite woman. She's identified as a girl from the countryside, from Shunem, which is a small agricultural village in the region of Lower Galilee. There are three main interpretations of the Song of Solomon. The first is the literal interpretation, a series of love poems describing the feelings and the explicit desires of two young lovers. The second interpretation is an allegory. And the allegorical interpretation basically ignores the male-female relationship and interprets the Song of Songs as God's loving covenant with Israel. We understand that God's covenant was extended and expanded in the New Testament to embrace all of us who are belong to Jesus. We are the church, the bride of Christ. And both the Song of Songs and the Apostle Paul use this profound mystery of marriage as a metaphor to symbolize the love that Christ has for the church. You remember Paul's famous passage in Ephesians 5. It's quoted at most marriages. Husbands are to demonstrate love for your wives with the same tender devotion that Christ demonstrated to us as his bride. For he died for us, sacrificing himself to make us holy and pure, cleansing us through the word of God. All that he does in us is designed to make us a mature church, a mature church until we become a source of praise to him through and glorious and radiant and beautiful and holy without flaw and without fault. Marriage is the beautiful design of Almighty God. It is a great and sacred mystery, and it is Christ's love for the church. The Song of Songs is a love story which conveys how our heavenly bridegroom, Jesus, pursues us with a holy love. This is not the over-sexualized definitions of love promoted by our culture. It is God's unfailing, fierce love, the holiest and the purest of all loves. If you're a single adult here this morning, you might say, well, Charlotte, what does this have to do with me? I'm not married. But I want you to know that Jesus is your heavenly bridegroom. He honestly is, who embraces you with a love that is unlike any human love that you will ever find. Because his love is unselfish, it is healing, and it is pure. The third interpretation is typology. And while the allegory interpretation applies this spiritual and historical meaning, the typology interpretation recognizes the validity of the Old Testament as a foreshadowing of what is revealed in the New Testament. The Greek word typos means pattern or something derived from a pattern. And the typology approach views the New Testament as a culmination 
of the Old Testament. One of the most beautiful and strongest examples in the Old Testament of typology is the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. If you have studied the tabernacle, you probably became captivated like me how every piece of furniture, every piece of fabric and covering pointed to Jesus. In fact, all of the Old Testament points to the person of Jesus Christ. This morning, I'm going to apply this typology approach to this story conveyed in Song of Songs by presenting King Solomon as a type of Christ, our heavenly bridegroom, and the Shulamite maiden as a type of us, the body of Christ. In the Song of Songs, we hear the heartbeat of Jesus as he invites us into this pure, intimate relationship with him. Song of Songs is a revelation of Jesus as our beloved and our true identity as his bride. There's a process in the Song of Songs that nourishes an intimate relationship with Jesus. It is a process cultivated by a variety of settings, and they all have spiritual significance. In chapter 1, we are introduced to the Shulamite maiden in a vineyard where she encounters King Solomon. Jewish tradition tells us that King Solomon would sometimes disguise himself as a shepherd to go and, and visit the remote areas of his kingdom. And here in the vineyards of Shunem, the Shulamite maiden has grown weary of a life of hard oppression and forced labor in her brother's vineyards. She has not been able to take care of her own vineyard, and she is so conscious of her inadequacy and how others see her. In verse, chapter 1, verse 6, she says, Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My brothers, my mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me take care of the vineyards, and my own vineyard I have neglected." Many of you can remember how barren your life was before you came to Jesus. The enemy is a hard taskmaster. And the Shulamite maiden is weighed down under a burden of shame and worthlessness. And shame will always cause us to focus on ourselves, to go inward, to beat ourselves up with condemnation. We have a friend, a, a pastor friend, Brian Simmons, who wrote in his book, Song of Songs, you were not meant to spend a lifetime with guilt as your companion. Jesus is to be your companion. You really are his beautiful one, and there is a vast difference in knowing that you are forgiven and knowing that you are his beloved. There's a vast difference in knowing that you're forgiven of your sins and knowing that you are beloved by him this morning. When the Shulamite first meets King Solomon disguised as a shepherd, her heart is awakened by love. She has no idea that he's the king. If we were to share our stories this morning, each of our stories would be different, but all of our stories would tell how Jesus went out of his way to come to where we were. And each of us would say that when we gave our heart, when we first gave our heart to Jesus, we had no idea of his majesty. 
As a Shulamite maiden enters into this love relationship, she expresses her heart's desire in three cries. And I dare say these are the cries of our hearts too. Her first cry is for nourishment. Tell me, you whom I love, where do you feed your flock? This is chapter 1 and verse 7. She's hungry for sustenance. She's hungry for something real in life and revelation that comes directly from her shepherd. Restlessness and anxiety in our lives arise out of a lack of genuine spiritual nourishment. Jesus is our living bread. He is our source of true life. He is the one who nourishes our inner souls. And he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he encourages us to abide in him and to draw nourishment from him. She cries out for rest. Where do you rest your sheep at midday? The maiden is weary. She desires rest. Does that sound like any of us? Today, I think this COVID-19 has made us all appreciate rest. She has been responding to the demands of others while neglecting her own vineyard, her own spiritual nourishment. In the heat of the day, burdened with weariness and stress, she cries, where can I find rest? And we too sometimes find ourselves overwhelmed with the cares of this life and distracted from devotion to Jesus in a whirlwind of busyness. Our labors, even for God, will become exhausting if they are not born out of his rest and the overflow of his love in us. And finally, she cries out that this self-condemnation and shame be removed, be lifted from her. And she says, why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? Self-condemnation and shame are like a heavy veil that keep us gazing at ourselves and our failures. And by comparing herself with others, she only heaps more condemnation on herself. It is only Jesus that can lift this veil of shame from our eyes. As the story unfolds, the maiden becomes aware that her shepherd lover is also the king who desires an intimate relationship with her. In chapter 1, verse 4, the maiden expresses, let the king bring me into his chambers. Jesus desires to bring each one of us into an intimate relationship with him, not through our striving, but through his grace. And grace has a twofold nature, and I love this about grace. Grace is God's divine favor, it is not, we don't merit it, we don't deserve it. He freely gives us his grace. And grace is also God's divine empowerment to do what we cannot do in ourselves. In Numbers 12, 18, God spoke with Moses face to face, and the Hebrew interprets this as mouth to mouth, the very breath of God breathing his life into us. The Song of Songs often refers to kisses, which conveys this face-to-face, -face, intimate communication with Jesus. And as the Shulamite becomes aware of the beauty of her king, she is just so aware of her own sinfulness, her own imperfection. She compares herself to the tents of Kedar made of dark goat's hair. And in chapter 1, verse 5, she says, Dark I am. 
And as we come into the presence of Jesus, we discover the darkness of our own hearts. But if we stay in his presence and we don't run from that, we are transformed by his love and our view of ourselves changes. I love this in verse 5, chapter 1. Dark I am, that's the maiden's view of herself. But the king's response is, yet lovely. Jesus sees us through his eyes, and he declares us to be lovely. Through his unfailing love, we come to see ourselves as beautiful in his sight. The king brings the Shulamite woman to the banqueting table where she is amazed at the majesty of the king. And she experiences his blessing and provision. And she exclaims that his banner over me is love. The banner or the flag symbolizes identification and possession. And Jesus has raised his banner of love over our lives. And he has identified us as his own. Jesus ensures that we do experience wonderful times of blessing, which reinforce the wonder of his loving, intimate presence. And these experiences build confidence in, the, in his goodness. Yet the process of transformation is so much deeper. The king wants us to go higher with him. In chapter 2, verse 8, the Shulamite says, Listen. My lover, look, here he comes, leaping upon the mountains and bounding over the hills. She says that gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice, my lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. Come with me. But there is a wall between them. Look. There he stands behind our wall, the Shulamite woman says, but it's really her wall. Jesus is always calling us to higher levels, and he's inviting us to step out this morning from behind our walls. We've all built walls of self-protection, self-preservation, walls of fear, walls to hide the inner parts of us that we don't want anyone else to see. Walls that help us stay in our comfort zones, so we think. But our king is entreating us to come higher. Come with me, because he desires our true freedom and healing. And he desires that we experience the heights of his transforming power. He extends his invitation again, and he says, See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come, and the cooing of doves is heard in the land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming trees spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, come with me. We all have a winter. Past bondages, roots of generational brokenness, oppressive chains that Jesus wants to free us from. And his assuring love empowers us to come out from behind our walls and give him permission to take us wherever he wants to take us. Jesus is calling us his darling, which means his lover friend. And if we are willing to leave our comfort zones, he will take us to new heights. But we make the choice.
The Shulamite is not ready to go yet, and her lover king does not force her to go. It's a true portrayal of Jesus' gentle love. He sees what she's going to become, and he calls her my dove, which symbolizes purity. The king continues to call her, her be his beautiful one, even though she's not willing to go with him yet. And he says, show me your face. Let me hear your voice. This is chapter 2, verse 14. <clears throat> For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Even though we feel unworthy, afraid, hesitant, resistant, Jesus is waiting for you and me to respond to his loving invitation to arise. He desires to commune with us, to see our face, to hear our voice, because our words are sweet to his ears. Nighttime falls, and the Shulamite maiden is regretting her decision to not go with her beloved. These night sessions and experiences teach us very important lessons. There are times of deep soul-searching, deeper honesty, and the nurturing of humility as we realize our desperate need of Jesus. And she makes a decision in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I will rise now. All night long, which means night after night, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but I could not find him. I will rise now and go about the city, and I will search for the one my heart loves. We have all experienced times when we have not responded to the call of Jesus. We have resisted his gentle entreaties, and we feel ourselves isolated, profoundly longing for his presence. And it is precisely this kind of hunger that motivates us to arise and willingly seek for him with a greater sense of abandonment. The maiden's mission is to find her king. And she says, the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. And she kept asking them, have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and I would not let him go. Her beloved has become the most important person to her, and she is willing to publicly acknowledge her love for him. The Shulamite what maiden begins to recognize, though, that there's going to be a cost to her relationship with the king. In chapter 4 and verse 6, she says, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. The king's love has conquered her heart as well as her fear, and she is now willing to embrace the cross. Myrrh means suffering. We don't like to hear that word. But Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Some of you have heard a little bit of my testimony, and I'm just going to share a few brief points. But 28 years ago, Brant and I experienced the breakdown of our marriage. We were pastoring on the South Shore here in Massachusetts. We were separated for five years. I was a single mom with two teenagers. I had lived under a performance model of ministry 
that had left me wasted. And I went through years of profound isolation. I was uprooted from my church community. Our home was the church parsonage, so no longer had a home. I mean, we rented a place, but it was not the home we had had. And most of my friends could not walk with me through the grief and devastation that I experienced. But it was here in the mountain of myrrh that I came to know Jesus, really know Jesus, and receive his love as never before. I would never have desired the way it happened, but I would never trade what God did in my life through this experience. My heart was transformed as I realized that Jesus truly loved me for me and not my performance. I will never forget being in the Garden of Gethsemane in 1995 and just weeping as I recognized the love that had propelled Jesus to drink the bitter cup of suffering and death on the cross for me. True worship will always cost us something. And she says, I will go to the hill of incense, which speaks of worship. It is in life's crucibles when we choose to worship Jesus on the hill of incense for who he is, even in the midst of our pain, that we experience the power of his cleansing love. True worship is a pure offering from a heart of love for Jesus alone, with no strings attached. The incense of this pure worship deepens our relationship with Jesus. When we just say, Lord, I'm yours, I love you, in the midst even of our pain, there is something about that that releases the power and the presence of God into our lives. We just worship him for who he is. I referenced Madame Guillon in my introduction. When she contracted smallpox, she stated that this illness crushed her vanity and her pride so that she could become a vessel unto honor, sensitized to the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Shulamite's willingness to truly embrace her beloved, even in suffering, delighted his heart, and he declares her to be his darling and affirms her beauty in verse 7 of chapter 4. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. And in verse 8, he calls her his bride for the very first time. One of the most amazing things about Jesus is that he sees what we are becoming when we can't even see our own potential. The Song of Solomon's chapter 4 describes a garden, a secret place of communion where the maiden meets with her beloved. It's a locked garden. It's reserved for them alone, symbolizing the cultivation of our inner life with Jesus as we prioritize time with him. As we nourish the garden of our inner life with Jesus, we become what is referred to in Isaiah 58 and 11 as a well-watered garden. Jesus promised that he would be the source of a spring of living water which would flow out of us. 
In John 4, you remember Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this village well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Notice this progression here in chapter 4 and verse 15. At first it's a garden fountain, and then it's a well, and then it's a stream, a spring of flowing water. And this is exactly what Jesus wants our lives to become. The bride is beginning to understand that her very life, symbolized by the garden, belongs to her lover king, and his fragrance can only spread out when both the north wind, the wind of adversity, and the south wind, the gentle breezes, blow on her garden. So she invites both of these winds. In Song of Songs, chapter 4, 16, she says, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, and blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. This invitation to the north wind and to the south wind reveals a twofold purpose for the cultivation of Jesus' garden in our lives. The first purpose is for the increase of the king's presence and his fragrance. We can't experience the king's fragrance unless we're willing to spend time with him alone. And it's also for the pleasure of her king. My lover will come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Chapter 5 brings a very distinct turning point. There's so much to this book I'm just dashing through this morning with some of the highlights, but I hope God will stir a hunger in you to really make it yours. It is a late night hour, and it's different from the former night time in chapter 3. It is very late at night, and the Shulamite bride hears knocking at her door. She knows it's the king because she hears his voice calling, Open to me. But instead of getting up and opening the door, she responds with excuses. And I'm going to read these verses in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. And the bride's response was, I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them? And God has been impressing on my heart that this scenario describes the bride of Christ, especially here in America. We are creatures of comfort, and we tend to settle for the familiar. But Jesus is calling us as his bride to go higher, to go deeper. He's calling us to a life of committed love, a love that yearns for him more than our own comfort, a love that is willing to open the door of our heart to him, whether it is convenient or not. The king put his hand through the latch, but he would not force his entrance. 
And by the time the bride got up to open the door, he was gone. And she began to look for him, but she could not find him. And the watchman of the city, whose job it was to protect her, actually found her and beat her and bruised her. The daughters of Jerusalem asked her a soul-searching question, a question that we must answer too. How is your beloved better than others? Chapter 5, verse 9. How is your beloved better than others? We do not realize how loudly our faith speaks in times of testing. These friends, these daughters of Jerusalem, had grown up in the city, but they had not experienced the intimate friendship of the king. They could not even understand the Shulamite's devotion to her king, but they did see his beauty shining upon her. And in chapter 5, she's able to answer their question with a glorious description of her beloved king summed up in verse 6. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover, my friend. How are we answering this searing question this morning? How is your beloved better than others? Is our king the one we love the most? Is our beloved better than our hopes and dreams? Is our beloved better to spend time with than any other pleasure that we enjoy? Do we really believe and do we live like he is better than anyone else or anything else? Jesus is asking us to answer this question. And he is not going to allow us to settle for familiarity or for some kind of insipid, lukewarm relationship with him. Jesus' desire is that our love for him become our consuming intrinsic motivation and in recent months COVID-19 and all the tumult going on here in America has propelled me to some deep personal soul searching and I am realizing my need for a greater love commitment to Jesus and daily I'm crying out Lord will you ignite my heart will you ignite my heart with your love We are only going to be able to endure as we press into the heart of Jesus and as we are infused with his love. We have to settle this issue in our hearts that as a follower of Jesus, we will be misunderstood. We may face beating, we may face bruising, and only his perfect love is going to cast out our fear. We must understand that the goal, the goal of all ministry must be to exalt the beauty of Christ. Because the Shulamite woman continues to search for her lover and boldly testify to his grace and beauty, even in the midst of the questions, even in the midst of not knowing quite where he's gone, she creates thirst in the hearts of others. And the daughters of Jerusalem now want to know where they can find the king. In chapter 6, verse 1, they ask, where has your beloved gone? The Shulamite actually knows where he is. He's in the garden. The garden is the church. He's with his bride. God has always ordained the church to be the instrument he works through on this earth. There are two core identities that Jesus is revealing in his church. In Song of Songs, two questions are posed. 
which reveal these identities. And both questions begin with the words, who is this? Who is this? The first identity is Christ's militant church. Chapter 6 and verse 10, Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? I'm going to say that one more time. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? The morning light is rising upon the church. Jesus is raising up a spiritual army on earth to fight the good fight of faith against the principalities and the darkness of this world. We are marching under his banners. We are not fighting against flesh and blood people. No man is our enemy. We are fighting against principalities and and wickedness in high places. But we are Christ's sanctified bride. We are fair as the moon because we reflect his light, his holiness, his glory. In Judges chapter 5 and verse 31, Deborah, the prophetess in the Old Testament, she spoke of a day when God's enemies would perish, but those that love him would be as the sun. And, in, and Jesus said in Matthew 13, 43, Then shall the righteous shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. The militant church is arising. It is a church whose first allegiance is to Jesus Christ, our divine commander, not to political parties. Where did we get this idea that our first allegiance is to some political party here on earth? Our first allegiance is to King Jesus. It is not to worldly philosophies. It is not to man's ideologies. It is not to our own vain ideas and imaginations. Before we can truly be the church militant, though, we must become the bride. We must be fully devoted to Jesus with a passionate love. We will never function as the army of God without a fervent love for God first and his kingdom. In chapter 7, a paradigm shift has happened. The bride's identity is fully established in her beloved. She knows, she knows without a shadow of a doubt that she belongs to her beloved and that he truly loves her. And she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Chapter 7, verse 10, this is what has to happen within us as a people of God. We have to know that we know that we know that we are His. I am my beloved's and His desire is for me. God's desire is for you. God's desire is for His people this morning to strengthen you and to bring you into a fullness of relationship with Him. Her joy now is to be with him, and she is ready to run with him to the mountaintops and labor with him in the countryside, in the, the mission fields of the earth, the villages, wherever, wherever he takes her. The Hebrew word for villages is kafar, which means henna bushes, and henna is a plant speaking of atonement in Scripture. 
The bride has become, willing, has become willing to be a willing partner with the king to bring his message of love to those who need to hear it. The other identity, and I've alluded to it throughout this message, but it is found in chapter 8, verse 5, another who is this question. Who is this coming up from the desert or the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Who is this coming out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? The bride has surrendered fully to her beloved, and she is totally dependent on her king. Coming up out of the wilderness, transformed, triumphant. She has been purified through the testing in the wilderness and is now the overcoming church, the overcoming bride of Christ, purified by his love. Love alone is the only motivation that will cause us to remain faithful to Jesus. It is not religious obligation. It is not guilt. It is not fear. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains me. It compels me. It motivates me. He had been so captured by the love of Jesus that that was the intrinsic motivation for whatever he did. 2 Corinthians 3 and 18, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. This is what God's after. He's after transformation. He wants to transform me. He wants to transform you. He wants to transform his entire body and make us to be what his divine purpose has always been for us. And finally, I love this verse in Jude, the little book just before Revelation, Jude chapter 24, or Jude, sorry, verse 24, there's only one chapter. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. That's God's ultimate goal. He is going to present us faultless with exceeding great joy. Father, we thank you for your promises, for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would be willing, Lord, to go to new heights with you. That, Lord, we would be willing, God, to really allow you, God, to do within each of us, Lord, what you desire to do. We pray, God, that we will be truly the bride of Christ, reflecting your light and your glory, Lord. And we would also be the church triumphant, militant, Lord, serving you with a heart of that's been captured by your love that your love would be the motivating force, Lord, in all of our lives. And we thank you, God, 
that you are doing this, Lord. You have promised that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not, will not prevail against it. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are going to present us one day as your glorious church before the Father with exceeding great joy, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you will open up our hearts and our eyes, Lord, to behold that day, Lord, to behold that destiny, Lord. And Lord, that, that other things will diminish, God, and that you would become the center of our focus and our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more resources like this in our website, leondejuda.org, and in our social networks by searching for Congregación León de Judah. We look forward to being with you again. God bless you.